0: Well, I want to add my greetings to those who have come before me this morning. My name is Brian McCrory. If you are a guest with us this morning, uh, we're very thankful that you have spent some time with us on the Lord's Day. He's given us a beautiful day to gather together and to worship Him, to sing of Him, to hear His Word, to serve one another. And uh, we would love to get to know you a little bit better if this is your first time at Heather Hills. Uh, If you would take one of those little communication cards from the the back of the pew in front of you and just uh, fill out the front side of that. Let us know a little bit about yourself. And uh, on your way out today, if you would just drop that card in uh, the little box out there for the offering, uh, we will get that and be able to make uh, some contact with you. But thank you for being here. We uh, we always count it a privilege to meet new folks here and help them on your journey, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Well... Um, The title of my message this morning is Crucified. We've come a long way to get here, haven't we, in John's Gospel. Uh, We started in John chapter 1, where we learned that the one about whom we're reading is face to face with God for all eternity. You remember that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we looked at how that meant that God was face to face with him. And by him all things were made, nothing made that was not made by him. We learned he is the light, the light that enlightens everyone, that gives life to everyone and everything. That's where we began this journey that we're on. We began before there was anything. We began before there was time. That's where the story begins, before Bethlehem, before the Garden of Eden before creation itself. That's where the story began. And this is where we've come to. In that first chapter of John, we learned that the Word became flesh. And we know the story of that human flesh, don't we? The one that the disciples met, the one that the disciples later described to us. We've become familiar with that person over these last couple of years as we've studied this gospel, those of us who are believers this morning, we have a real hard time coming objectively to this story that we're studying this morning because as though it were somehow um, or other unrelated to who we are and what we are. We know this one, don't we? We've known about this one from our earliest days, some of us. For others of us, we've come to know him in later life. But we know him. We know his story. We know about his birth in Bethlehem. We know about his mother Mary. We know about her experience of having the birth announced to her by angels. We know the poverty into which he was born. We know the threat to his life early on that led his parents to take him down into Egypt to a place of safety. We know all of these things. We know that he went to a wedding that John tells us about in chapter 2. We know that he turned water into wine at that wedding. We know that he fed multitudes with bread. We know that he healed people, that he made blind people see, deaf people hear, lame people jump for joy. We know that he did those things. We know that he raised dead people to life. We know him. He's our friend. We can't breathe without Him. We can't get up in the morning and live without Him. We can't face terminal illness and death without Him. He is everything to us. He's our life. He's our being. He's everything we'll live for. There's not one moment of our lives for which He is not the most significant factor in it. We know Him. He's changed everything for us. We don't want to exist in a universe where He is not present. And yet it has come to this. I want us to notice in our text this morning, beginning in verse 16, bearing the cross. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. We're told in verses 16 and following here that we find Jesus being taken in charge. That's the phrase that was used, taken in charge by the soldiers. He was a condemned man now. He's pressed into carrying the cross to the place of execution. So the Bible says he went out bearing his own cross, literally bearing it for himself stressing that Jesus did this work. He did this work Himself, carrying the very wood on which He would be fastened as a sacrifice for our sins. And there's echoes in this very verse, isn't there, of another incident that happened a long time before, perhaps as many as 2,000 years before, but a man called Abraham is taking his son Isaac to be sacrificed up the very same mountain that Jesus is about to be sacrificed on, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And we read about that boy Isaac in Genesis, that he carried the wood for the sacrifice up the hill behind his father, who took the wood... And laid it out in order that he might lay his own son on that wood. And there sacrifice him as an offering to God. As an act of obedience to God. We don't understand how Abraham had the faith to do that. We're told in the Bible that Abraham believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead even. And as Abraham is about to plunge the knife into his own son, Isaac, whom he loves, the child of promise given to him in his old age, we know the story and there's the sound of an animal caught in the thicket. It's a ram that's been caught there and the ram dies instead of Isaac dying. And ever since the beginning of John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's come to this. Bearing His cross. Only He can accomplish the sacrifice. Only He can go to the cross on our behalf. And consider this. The God who spared Abraham's son will not spare his only son. Then the focus changes. Notice secondly, verses 18 and following, we see the one on the cross, not only bearing the cross, but on the cross. There they crucified him. Two things happen on the cross that we see in our text. First, in verse 18, on the cross, Jesus was crucified. John describes the horror that was crucifixion in one single word there. They crucified him. Crucified. Crosses were, of course, familiar to the people of John's day. They came in various forms. Sometimes a tree with Y-shaped branches were used. Sometimes a great stake in the ground to which the victim was pinned. Sometimes the familiar cross beam on a stake would be hoisted up and the figure would be pinned to that cross. They were fastened to the cross either with ropes or with nails, their feet just off the ground, not necessarily very high often uh, as we picture sometimes when we think of the cross of Jesus, his feet quite close to the ground. He'd be within talking distance, just, just above the heads of those standing by. It'd be very easy for the soldiers to just hand up to him on some hyssop some water for his lips to enable him to speak. He was kept there by a little uh, horn of wood that projected out from the bottom of the stake that took the weight of his body to prevent the flesh from tearing and him falling off. It was a terrible death. Commentator Leon Morris wrote this, nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body Breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel, yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We can't even say that a crucified person writhed in agony because it was impossible for them to move. Just as he had done... When speaking earlier of the scourging in chapter 19, John just mentions it, crucifixion, and passes on. The brevity of, of, of this language is in direct contradiction to a lot of the popular piety in the history of the church. There's been a lot of focusing through history on the pains and the agonies of Jesus leading up to his death, there's been a a great focus on an interest in the kind of of physicality of the sufferings that he's enduring. John doesn't go into detail. In some churches, there is a, a regular reminder of every element of the sacrifices and agonies that he endured. But John doesn't go into that detail. There, they crucified Him. The Gospel writers make no attempt to satiate our bloodlust or tug at our heartstrings. John tells us that when Jesus was crucified there, the text says, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. This to Jesus' enemies would have been The ultimate, the final indignity. Here he is among the criminals in his death. They loved that. But of course, it was just as Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 53. He would be numbered among the transgressors. But for John and for us, Jesus crucified between the criminals, even though he was innocent, even though he was sinless, Is to us the greatest joy and our greatest treasure. To think that he came to save sinners by making himself one with sinners in his death. To think that he came to bear sin and be identified with those who have broken God's law in order that he might be our substitute. And our representative and our Savior blows our minds. And it transforms our lives. On the cross, Jesus was crucified. There's a second thing that happened on the cross. Jesus was identified. Notice verses 19 and following. Verse 19, in addition to all the other indignities that Pilate had already shown the Jews, it says Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. This was not uncommon. In fact, very often when a criminal was being led out to the place where the cross would be, there would be someone who would walk in front of them holding a placard. And on that placard would be written the guilt or the sins or the wrongdoing of which he was guilty. But there was no placard going in front of Jesus. There was no accusations that held, was there? His judge, Pilate, had told us three times and told the crowd that he was free of guilt, innocent, nothing worthy of crucifixion. And it seems that in putting this inscription on the cross, Pilate was getting back at the Jews a little bit leaving them a parting shot, as it were, for they're manipulating Him into this action. The inscription placed above Jesus' head, the Bible says it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Crucifixions took place in public places. This was a public place just outside the city wall of Jerusalem. It was on the main road. People would be going about their ordinary business. They'd be going to market. They'd be going to their place of employment. They'd be going back home again. It was designed, crucifixion on these public areas was designed to have a major impact by the Romans. Shock and awe. It was meant to be a reminder, this is what happens to you if you break the Roman law. This is where you end up crucified. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Executions were public occasions. There would have been many people who came just to look. Many people, of course, had heard about Jesus. They would want to to see his end. It was a well-known teacher, healer, Loads of people would have come. And Pilate takes advantage of this. He wants to humiliate the Jews. He has it written in Aramaic, the language of the country. He has it written in Greek, the common language of communication throughout the Roman world. He has it written in Greek. Uh, And then he has it written in Latin, the official language of the empire. And Pilate is responsible for ensuring that as Jesus hangs on the cross, his own language, his own words, Jesus' own words are fulfilled. Do you remember what he said? If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The cross is becoming his throne. Jesus will rule the world from his cross by virtue of his cross. By virtue of his obedience. By virtue of his sacrifice. He will reign. And once again, we see this this kingdom, this kingship motif, this theme that's brought into the picture. And the Jewish authorities do not want this. Verse 21. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather... This man said, I am king of the Jews. They didn't like Pilate's inscription. Why? Because they would refused to make Jesus their king. Although, this is the reason that they gave to Pilate. This man makes himself a king, right? That was one of the things they told Pilate. But they had refused his authority. Pilate will have none of it. He says here with an air of finality... He will not alter anything that had been written. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It will stand. And what Pilate didn't know is it's going to stand for all time. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now neither Pilate nor the Jews believed that Jesus was their King. But in the sovereignty of God, This claim is recorded for all time, placarded on the cross for all to see. Another example of God using sinful people to accomplish His purposes. In fact, as we see Jesus on the cross, you know Him and I know Him to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, as Paul said in Philippians 2. Bearing the cross, on the cross, and thirdly, near the cross. The focus changes again, the camera pans out. We're now looking at the ones who are standing nearby, looking upward at the victim on the cross. Verse 23, "...when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, "'Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be.'" This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, "'They divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots.'" So the soldiers did these things. Notice 2 subpoints here for near the cross. First of all, we see soldiers gambling. Verses 23 and 24. It wasn't unusual for the soldiers to commandeer the clothing. And if the effects of a crucified or executed man, um, these would have included things like an outer garment, an undergarment, a loincloth, belt, sandals. And the soldiers on duty, apparently four of them, cast lots to determine which item belonged to which soldier. And in the process of dividing up the stuff, they came across this coat, this tunic, which instead of being made of different pieces of cloth and sewn together, had been woven in one piece from the top to the bottom, without a seam. That made it more valuable. Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, tells us that the high priest's coat, same word, tunic, was of this type, woven in one piece. Could be that John recognized that there was some importance to that, and that's why he reports This fact that takes place, maybe he's saying that this is significant because John has already emphasized or introduced to us the idea that Jesus is the high priest, the great high priest who offers the sacrifice of himself. But John does notice, one thing we do know is that John notices as he reflects on this, that this is fulfilling some words of prophecy, some words from the Old Testament, from Psalm 22. John doesn't tell us why he thought of Psalm 22, but the other gospel writers tell us why. Remember the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written before the gospel of John. John would have been familiar with their content. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus at this point cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse 1 of Psalm 22. And very often in the Bible, where a part of Scripture is cited, good Bible study will tell you, instruct you, when you see something that comes from the Old Testament, to go back and read the rest of that context. Because likely, there's other connections as well. When someone's thinking over a passage of Scripture. And so Jesus is saying from the cross, In saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is also saying, you want my perspective on what's going on here? Read Psalm 22. These are the words of the Holy Spirit conveyed to David, where David heard the voice of the Son of God describing to his father what he'd endured on the cross. Part of that psalm says this, Dogs encompass me. A reference to Gentiles, like the Roman soldiers. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John sees Psalm 22 Fulfilled before His own eyes as Jesus hangs on the cross. This detailed description in Psalm 22, given by the psalmist through the Holy Spirit, is a wonderful confirmation of the mastery of the wonders of God whose will was accomplished in every detail. It was because of God's decreed will that these people acted the way they did. Of their own free will. But because of the decree of God, near the cross, there were soldiers gambling. Near the cross, secondly, there were followers standing. Verses 25 to 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Deserted as Jesus was by his disciples, he was not utterly abandoned. Remember, all the disciples ran away. But some women stood by the cross, four believing women, who stand as a contrast to these four gambling soldiers. John describes them. There was Mary... The Lord's mother was there even though she's unnamed. John is the only gospel writer who mentions the presence of Jesus' mother at the cross. John typically does not mention the names either of himself or of his family. And in this case, he does not mention Mary's name. Mary's sister is there. We know her name is likely Salome. Salome who was the mother of James and John. Again, John, who's writing the Gospel, doesn't name himself or his family, and he doesn't give his mother's name here. Then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas. We don't know too much about this woman, except we know she was one of the women who went to the tomb on resurrection morning. She was one of those women who tried unsuccessfully to persuade the disciples that Christ had risen, but they didn't believe her. And she was the mother of the Apostle James, the son of Alphaeus. The name Alphaeus is a variant of Clopas. Finally, there was Mary Magdalene. By the way, Mary was never a prostitute, like Dan Brown wants us to believe in the popular books he's written. She was delivered of seven demons, the Bible tells us, and was one of those women who ministered to Jesus and along with others helped to finance his ministry and team. These women were standing near the cross, close enough to hear his voice, close enough for him to speak to them. Their love for Jesus had overcome their fear of being associated with Him. They'd followed. They'd stayed as close as they could. And now they come as near as it's possible to come to comfort Him by their presence. And He is conscious of their presence, isn't He? And in His anguish, Jesus thought of His mother. It's an infinitely moving thing That Jesus is in the agony of the cross. In that moment where the salvation of the world hangs in the balance. And he's thinking about the loneliness of his mother. In the days to come. After he would be taken away. His brothers and sisters, of course, the rest of the family at this point in his life didn't believe in him. His mother believed in him. And so, to his cousin John, Jesus commits his mother. Right to the very end, Jesus is fulfilling all the duties of a son to his family. He saw her. He saw the beloved disciple, the way John wrote of himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We don't know when John came to the cross. He's not mentioned by the other gospel writers. And he's not named here, just the disciple whom Jesus loved. But there is an eyewitness element here that tells us John was there. He saw. And even as the Lord Jesus bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, as Peter records, Jesus turns to the future of his own mother. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In fact, as you trace church history, you'll find that After the persecution of the church came to Jerusalem, John and Mary both moved to the city of Ephesus where they lived and where they both died and where their tombs are today to this very day. John was exiled, of course, later in life to the Isle of Patmos, not too far away from Ephesus. But after he returned from his exile, he lived the rest of his days in that city and died there. He took care of Mary the rest of his life. Jesus is doing two things here in his words to his mother and to John. He's caring for her. He's also drawing a line. She'd given birth to him. She'd carried him for nine months. She'd cared for him all her life. But as he had done at the beginning of his public ministry, you remember at the wedding? So here he is reminding her and he's reminding us that Mary, the mother of our Lord, had to be a believer too, had to trust him, needs his salvation and care too, and commits her into the hands of one who knows him and loves him and cares for him and therefore will protect her and encourage her in her love for Christ as a believer in the coming days. It's a beautiful text. Only recorded here in the Gospel of John. And we have one more text in the crucifixion to come next Sunday. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front for our final songs. I'll also ask the leadership team to come to the front to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, it's come to this. Jesus on the cross. That's where we end this morning. We leave Him here for a moment. We'll return, Lord willing, next Sunday. But we can't think about this without realizing why He's there. It was my sin that put Him there. It was your sin that put him there. He's coming to the world to go to that cross for us, for all of us. That's what it's always been about. He'd been trying to tell his disciples that from the very beginning, he's tried to hammer it into their heads. This is what it was all about. And it reminds me of the great hymn Bearing sin and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior.